This afternoon, I'm going to talk to you about Taoism, which is one of the principal forms of Chinese philosophy, as it were, the opposite number of Confucianism. For these two ways of thought lie at the roots of Chinese civilization. Both of them having a kind of common origin in the attitude to life expressed in the Book of Changes or the I Ching, which may be as early as about 1300 BC. Everybody today seems to be reading the I Ching. It's a very strange book. It is a commentary on 64 symbols, which are made up of uh, broken and unbroken lines. The unbroken line like this and the broken line like this. And this unbroken line is called Yang, Yang. The broken line is called yin. And if you make a figure in which there are six lines, you can obviously have 64 variations. And uh, this is ostensibly a method of decision making. When you flip a coin to make a decision, you've only got two choices. It's either heads or tails. But imagine having a 64-sided coin to flip to help you make decisions. It's rather an interesting idea because when we do make decisions, we are always eventually reduced to flipping a coin. However well you think it through, you don't have time enough to think it all the way through. You know that there are always possibilities that you didn't take into consideration or couldn't take into consideration. And although you plan and wonder and uh, work out the data, it eventually comes down to the point where you flip a coin because you've got to make up your mind. But in some respects, you see, a 64-sided coin would be more um, suggestive, shall we say, than a two-sided coin. Well, anyway, these uh, hexagrams, as they're called in the I Ching, are made up of fundamentally two symbols, yang, the positive, and yin, the negative. And the words yang and yin seem to refer originally to the south and north sides of a mountain. The south side is the sunny side, the north side, the shady side. And note, that you cannot possibly have a one-sided mountain. Therefore, it's always understood that the yang and the yin are the explicit differences of an implicit unity. The poles. Yang is called male, yin is called female. And uh, another way in which they're represented, aside from these two lines, is in this familiar symbol in which one tadpole is black and the other white with the eye of the tadpole of the opposite color. 
and uh, so they constitute a unity. Behind this unity is sometimes something represented by an empty circle, which is called uh, Tai Chi, the great ultimate. The word Chi refers to the ridge pole of a roof on which, of course, the two sides of a roof depend, on which they are propped together, like the two sticks that I talked to you about which support one another. Take one away, the other collapses. So underneath the whole philosophy of China, there lies this recognition of uh, the polarity of the universe that the opposites go together, or as Lao Tzu puts it in the second chapter of his book, The Tao Te Ching, when all the world understands beauty to be beautiful, there is already ugliness. When all the world understands goodness to be good, there is already evil. For to be and not to be arise mutually. Now this uh, interesting Chinese remark to be also means to have, not to be, that also means no, nothing, arise, mutually. Neither one is before the, or after the other. They come into being together. And this has to do then with the yang. This is yang and this is yin. So now, when it comes to Taoism, this is a point of view that becomes explicit in Chinese history, probably in the neighborhood of 400 BC. It used to be said that Lao Tzu, L-A-O-T-Z-U, was, uh, was originally thought to have been a contemporary of Confucius, who lived between 6 and 500 BC. But uh, the general weight of scholarly opinion today is that the Lao Tzu book is uh, about 400. And uh, the book is called the Tao Te Ching. If there were an apostrophe after the T, you would pronounce it Tao. But if there is no apostrophe, you pronounce it Tao, because our scholars made up a way of Romanizing Chinese, which only they could read. And uh, they could have spelled it D-A-O or D-O-W, but um, they didn't want the laity to be initiated. Uh, the next word is D, because again, there's no apostrophe after the T, so it's pronounced D. And Jing, there is no apostrophe after the C-H, so, if there were, it would be pronounced Ching, but it's Jing, like a J. And so, Jing, in Chinese, uh, means a classical book or scripture. Tao is usually translated the way, but I would prefer to call it the course, the course of nature. And De, means virtue, but in the sense that we use the word virtue when we say the healing virtue of a plant. 
it has a magical connotation or a connotation of power and peculiar skill of Tao and De and it is written by Lao Tzu which means the old boy <laughs> uh, the legend of course is that Lao Tzu was the librarian of the imperial court who when he became an old man and sick of the intrigue of court life decided to vanish into the mountains but he was detained at the city gate by the captain of the guard who said sir we cannot lose you without your leaving behind some record of your wisdom and so he prevailed upon him to sit in his gate uh, house and write down this book which is a very short laconical book and it is divided into two main sections one about Tao and one about De. He was followed in due course by a number of successors of which the most important is somebody called Zhuangzi. And this man is really marvelous. He's one of the very few philosophers who have ever lived who was a great humorist. And if you get the modern library edition of the wisdom of Lao Tzu, translated by Lin Yutang, you will find in that lots of Zhuangzi, translated as a commentary on Lao Tzu. And he is really delightful. He's a delicious person to read because he has a kind of humor wherein he caricatures his own philosophy and takes it to absurd extremes just for the joke of it. And he puts a lot of his philosophy into the mouth of Confucius just to confuse everyone. He's a really witty man and he, uh, you must read him. So then, uh, what I want to do is to discuss the main ideas of Lao Tzu and of course naturally we have to start with Tao. This word in Chinese uh, is made up of this part of the character here is called the radical and it means it, it is connected with motion uh, going on and stopping or rhythmic motion on and off and this other part of the character here means intelligence so you've got intelligent motion the course of nature but the character also means to speak and so it's rather like the Greek Logos the first verse of Lao Tzu's book starts out by saying uh, something that you really can't translate uh, so you have to see it in Chinese it says Tao This character means uh, can, can do, can be. Again, Tao. The Tao which can be Tao, not. This character means regular or eternal Tao. And so we normally translate this. The Tao which can be spoken 
is not the eternal Tao. It could mean also the way which can be weighed, traveled, is not the regular way. But most commentators agree to the first translation. The Tao which can be described is not the eternal Tao. Then why go on to write a book about it? Well, consistency is a virtue of small minds. <laughs> so you have in the idea of Tao the flow of life the flow of events, the world considered as a stream. And water is very often used by Lao Tzu to give the idea of Tao, because water always takes the line of least resistance. Water is very soft, and yet one of the strongest things in the world. You can chop water with a sword, but leave no wound. You can't squeeze it. You can't compress it. Wonderful stuff. And elsewhere he says, man at his birth is supple and tender, but in death he is rigid and hard. Thus suppleness and tenderness are the marks of life, and rigidity and hardness the marks of death. Tao is always gentle, you see, always yielding. It is feminine in a way. Lao Tzu says, although you may be a male, always have a certain feminine quality, and thus you will become a universal channel. That has particularly to be learned by men in the United States, who tend uh, to overcompensate masculinity, uh, to uh, be ashamed of gentleness and to emphasize a kind of yang 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 attitude to life, uh, which usually indicates a fear of incipient homosexuality. Uh, and uh, as a result, we have a lot of um, misunderstanding between men and women, because each one is so busy being their particular sex that they have nothing in common. So, uh, this idea then is the strength of gentleness. And of course, it is ultimately on this philosophy that the Japanese worked out the science of judo. Do is the way the Japanese pronounce Dao. Ju means gentle. Judo, the gentle way, whereby a strong man is alarmingly defeated by the use of his own strength against himself. And the analogy is, of course, of the pine tree and the willow tree. The pine tree is a muscle man. And when the snow piles up and piles up and becomes icy, the pine tree branch cracks. But when the willow gets snow on it, after a little while, the branch drops and the snow falls off and the branch springs up again. That's judo. They teach you in Japan a mysterious science called Aikido. Again, Do meaning Tao. Uh, Aikido is the inner or esoteric aspect of Judo. And they can teach you, for example, to hold out your arm in such a way that no one can bend it, however strong. 
but it all depends on your not using effort to hold it out. You must not resist. There is a certain way of doing that. So this uh, Tao cannot be defined. That's basic. Just because it is the flow of nature, you can't capture it. You can't shut up wind in a box and expect it to be wind. You can't catch flowing water in a bucket because the minute it's in the bucket, it's no longer flowing. Now, Tao then is, uh, means what roughly what we would mean by the basic energy of the world. But the, there are two things to be said about it. And the first is that it is not a governing energy. Here we clearly come up against the principle or a concept of nature in which there is no government. This is an anarchic view of the universe. Not in the sense of chaos, but equally not in the sense of what we mean by order. The Tao does not rule. Lao Tzu says, the great Tao flows everywhere, both to the left and to the right. It loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. And when merits are accomplished, that is, good things are accomplished, it lays no claim to them. In fact, the Tao is always self-effacing, always disappears, always indefinable, always behind the scenes. And so, in a way, the, the Lao Tzu's book is written as a manual of advice to rulers. And his idea of a good ruler is one who is never in evidence. Uh, do you know, for example, in Hinsdale, the name of your sanitation chief? I bet you don't. But he's a very, very important official. <coughs> And uh, Lao Tzu would advise the President of the United States to behave like the Chief of Sanitation. <coughs> to be unobtrusive and to generally leave things alone. Let things take their course. Not in the sense of, well, it's like this. It's the difference between rowing and sailing. When you row, it's a relatively stupid method of propulsion because you have to use effort. <coughs> when you sail, you use the wind. But you don't have to go the way the wind is blowing. You can tack. And tacking in so as to go in an opposite direction to the wind is the art of Taoism. Uh, anyone who really understands sailing understands Lao Tzu. So, the next thing is that the Tao has a kind of order, but it's not quite what we mean by order. When we speak of order, we usually tend to think of something symmetrical, of something like a library, you know, where all the shelves are rectangular. But the Chinese have a word for order, for the order of the universe. 
which is this? They pronounce it Lee. Now this sign has the original meaning of the markings in jade, or the grain in wood, or the fiber in muscle. So now when you look at a cloud, or at foam patterns, or at grain patterns in wood, you know for some reason or other that you're not looking at a mess. You're looking at something decidedly wiggly, but aesthetically pleasing. But you can't figure it out. There are no rules which it follows. This word has been translated uh, the principle or rationale of nature, almost the law of nature. But the Chinese have no word for the law of nature. They do have a word for law, the word se. And this word se was originally written, and that represented a cauldron, an iron cauldron, with a knife beside it for scratching on the cauldron. Because in very distant times, certain emperors had the laws of the land written on the sacrificial cauldrons to which the people brought offerings, so that when they offered the sacrifices, they could read the laws. But certain sages said, you should never do that. Because if you write the laws down, people will develop a litigious spirit. They will always be yakking over what it means. And therefore, lawyers will have to define them more carefully. And then other lawyers will drive a carriage with six horses right through that. And then other lawyers must again define the laws more carefully. And that's the state we're in today, where we are utterly hamstrung by law. So the Tao is described as being Wu Tzu. Wu means is this character non-legal. The Tao is non-legal in its nature, but it is this, it is Li. And that means orderly in a way that cannot be defined. Just like your own nervous system is certainly orderly, but nobody has been able to figure out the principle of it. But you know at once, without being able to say how, the difference between Li and rigidity and Li and mess, chaos. So what you might call the best way of translating Li into English is to call it organic pattern. That's what it is. But we don't really know what that is because we are it. We are organic pattern, and just as we can't bite our own teeth, we cannot define our own organization. We are it, and that's all we need to be, because the teeth don't need to bite themselves. A saw doesn't need to cut itself. The sun doesn't need to illuminate itself. So then, this is the principle of Tao, but it is not law. If it were law, of course, the Tao which could be spoken would be the eternal Tao. But it can't be uttered. So, Tao uh, then is the principle of nature. And in Chinese, nature 
is called uh, really spontaneity. We use the word nature for the Chinese expression zi, zi ran. They pronounce J like a sort of unrolled R. I mean, that's the scholars did this to confuse you. Ziran means of itself so, self so. Almost our word automatic, except that automatic has a mechanical uh, sense, and this doesn't. When you have uh, belly rumbles or hiccups, you don't intend to have them. It happens of itself. In the same way, you don't intend to beat your heart. It happens of itself. You didn't intend to get born. It happened of itself. This is Zhiyan. And so this word means nature. Dai Zhiyan, or the Japanese pronounce it Shizen, uh, is roughly when they point to all the things happening around us, that's Zhiyan. And you see that Zhiyan, that that which is so of itself implies no boss. So in the same way, they would look at the human body. Zhuangzi discusses the human body and says, which organ do you prefer? And it shows there is no chief organ. There could be an argument between the brain and the stomach. One school of thought would say, well, obviously the stomach is the most important organ because that's where the food goes and is distributed to everywhere else. And stomachs came first. Then later, uh, on the upper end of the input channel to the stomach, there were evolved ganglia of nerves uh, to enable the stomach better to scratch around for things to put into it. And therefore, the brain serves the stomach. The other school of thought would say, well, no, it isn't that uh, things which come first aren't necessarily the most important. The stomach is to the brain, as John the Baptist was to Jesus. The uh, stomach is there, but to nourish the brain. The stomach is the servant of the brain, which is, of course, preoccupied with higher things that we call culture. But you see, both arguments will stand up and both will fail, because the stomach and the brain have a mutuality between each other. They arise mutually. And uh, there is no way of deciding which of the major organs of the body is top dog. Because the body is a sort of democracy in which by mutual cooperation things happen without any preconceived plan. We think in the West that the order of nature has a plan underneath it. That there was, as it were, the original blueprint in the mind of God, which is the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. But the Chinese don't think that way. They would agree with the Limerick. Well, I mean, they wouldn't, but they would agree with the humor of it. There was a young man who said, damn, 
for it certainly seems that I am a creature that moves in determinate grooves. I'm not even a bus, I'm a tram. But the Chinese do not think of any rails laid down, as it were, or rules laid down, upon which nature has to travel. They think simply that it organizes itself, but doesn't know how. Again, we're back to the centipede, which manages a hundred legs without thinking, because thinking would embarrass it. That sort of thing is called in Chinese putting legs on a snake. Snake needs no legs. And explaining the universe by a governor who dominates it is called legs on a snake. It's like saying we have an instinct to do this, that, and the other. When people talk about instincts, watch out. They're invoking ghosts. When we say we have an instinct to survive, it means simply that we do survive, in fact, until we don't. And if you want to explain the curious fact that people seem to want to survive, you call it an instinct to survive. And this is learned gobbledygook. There was a time sometimes when you showed a physician or a scientist some peculiar thing which he didn't understand. He would look at it, put on his spectacles, examine it from various points of view and make a few notes and then say, it is a lucis naturae. Everybody said, wonderful. He knows what it is, a lucis naturae. But it means it is a game of nature, <laughs> a freak. And you will find that uh, many, many medical people practice this sort of gobbledygook. You have a pain and they say, it's neuritis. It means simply that uh, neuritis means your nerves hurt. <laughs> so, it's always good to translate medical language back into English and you begin to get some idea of what's happening. Now the next thing to take up is the word de. And uh, as I said, this means virtue, power, sometimes magic. Uh, when we say a person is a virtuoso, we have something of the meaning of de in it. Marvelous accomplishment. And in opening the section on de, uh, Lao Tzu says, superior virtue is not virtue and thus is virtue. Inferior virtue cannot let go of virtue and thus is not virtue. Or we might say, a person who really has virtue is not striving for virtue and thus really has it. A person of inferior virtue is so trying to be virtuous that he's not virtuous. In other words, uh, when the person is trying and striving for virtue, he is being self-conscious and artificial. And we say, well, uh, so-and-so is very good, but isn't he rather forced? Isn't he a bit phony? And it's so often the case that people who are reputedly very virtuous are very boring. 
you feel that uh, sometimes people are so good that you are sitting on the edge of your chair in their presence and that you can't relax with them or let your hair down because they are full of judgment and uh, disapproval because they are always judging and disapproving of themselves. A really virtuous person doesn't show his virtue. He is like well, there's a poem in Chinese which says, Entering the forest, he doesn't disturb a blade of grass. Entering the water, he doesn't make a ripple. He looks very ordinary. And so his virtue can't be detected. He doesn't stink of virtue. So, uh, de, then, is the... The virtue of the great artist, say, or craftsman, who creates marvelous works of art, but always as if he was making no effort. And so we say of great art that it's artless, that it seems to come naturally, that he does it as if he were falling off a log. Now, of course, we know that it isn't that simple. But nevertheless, it does seem to be. So what everybody wants to know then is how to acquire that great naturalness in everything. So that we, in our human lives, manifest the Tao Tao manifested through man is dirt. How do you do it? So the transitional word, which shows the way from uh, to realize dirt in one's life. I don't need to write the character again because it's already here. And then this is pronounced this one is Wu, this one is Wei, Wu Wei. Wei means to act, to strain, to strive, or to interfere. And so the Taoist manner of life is Wu Wei. Don't force it. Always Go with the stream. You may need to use a rudder, but don't ever go against the stream. If you are swimming and you're caught in a very strong current, you'll be lost if you try to swim against it. You must swim with it and edge to the side. That's Wu Wei. This has been very well understood, even by the samurai in Japan who, when they became very great, real masters of swordsmanship, always found out and belonged to the no-sword school. Because the real master of the sword never uses one. There is a story that there were in Japan in ancient times two master swordsmiths. 
and there was a great debate as to which of them was the better. So some soldiers took a sword made by each master and decided to test them out. They first took a sword made by the man who, in general opinion, was perhaps a little inferior. And they went to a stream and they dipped the sword in the stream with the edge of the blade facing upstream. They dropped a piece of paper on the stream and it floated towards the sword and as it floated the sword simply divided it in two. The two pieces of paper joined together on the other side and went on down the stream. They then took the blade of the man reputed perhaps to be the greatest master and thought well it'd be pretty difficult to improve on that but we'll try it anyway so they gave the same test but as the piece of paper approached the sword it moved over to one side skirted it all together and went on <laughs> so the true master will never have to be in a fight. And for that reason, Aikido, as a uh, athletic technique, is learning how to be unattackable, is to always avoid the fight. And so, however hard people strike at you, they will always be hitting the air. That's duh, you see, that's magical power. But it all comes about through not using effort, not straining at anything, never strain. Like you never force a key in a lock, you'll just bend the key. You jiggle and jiggle and jiggle until it turns smoothly. Or put oil on it or something, but never force it. <coughs> Same way when you use your eyes, don't stare at anything in order to see it clearly because you'll just tie your eyes and make the image fuzzy. If you want to see the time on a distant clock, you close your eyes, you imagine black and relax your eyes, then look at the clock lazily and you will see that the detail is clearer. So when you sing, you mustn't force your voice. Once upon a time, a great choir master was uh, in the presence of William Temple, one time Archbishop of Canterbury, teaching a group of slum children how to sing. <coughs> and he asked them first to sing some song with which they were all familiar. And wanting to impress the Archbishop, they sang it very lustily, in a forced way, and it sounded terrible. Now he said, I want to show you something. There was present on this occasion a trained choir. And he said, now we're going to sing with this choir a song you people don't know. But listen to it. And the choir sang it very professionally. The choir master then turned to the group and said, now look, when you sing this song, the one thing you must not do is to try to sing it. 
You just think of the tune and let it sing itself. And they sang and did it very well. And he turned to the archbishop from whom I had the tale and said, that's good theology, isn't it, Your Grace? <laughs> now that's Taoism. That's Wu Wei. And so now there's another story with which I will exemplify this. Later than Lao Tzu, there was another Taoist sage called Lietza. And uh, he had the reputation of being able to ride on the wind. Of course, that's metaphorical. We say walking on air. <coughs> walking on air, never a care. Something is making me sing. And uh, so when Suzuki was asked what it's like to have uh, the experience of Satori or enlightenment, he once said, it is like ordinary everyday experience, except it's about two inches off the ground. Where you don't feel burdened by your own body. Where you don't feel you were something that you have to lug around and hold a club over, and generally boss. So the sense of lightness, that's the meaning of Lietza being able to walk on the air. But he told a story of how he managed to do it. He said he went to a great guru and uh, this guru paid no attention to him. So he just sat outside the door of his hut. And a year went by, and still this man paid no attention to him. So Lietza went away, disgusted. But then he thought it over a bit and realized this man had a terrific reputation, and that if perhaps he'd been a little bit more patient, he would have had some teaching. So he went back. And the great sage looked at him and said, why this ceaseless coming and going? <laughs> so he sat down again at the entrance of the hut and for a further year attempted to control his mind in such a way as never to think of profit or loss or advantage or disadvantage. And then at the end of that year, the teacher looked at him. For another year, he practiced. And at the end of that, the teacher invited him to come in the hut and sit on the mat. Then for the next year, however, he did something quite different. And he says this, I let my eyes see whatever they wanted to look at. I let my ears hear whatever they wanted to hear. I let my mouth say whatever it wanted to say. And I let my mind think whatever it wanted to think. And at the end of that year, I didn't know what was subject and what was object. I didn't take any account of time. I was riding on the wind, but I didn't really know whether the wind was riding on me or I was riding on the wind. And this was when he got to float, you see. But see how what he, did, he finally did. He allowed democracy to prevail. 
he said to his eyes, I'm not going to try and control you. You know how better how to see than I do. To his ears, I'm not going to force you to listen to anything. You know how to hear better than I can direct you. And so on for everything. He trusted his own brain. He trusted his own organism. And so he, this is Wu Wei. So in exactly the same way, if you practice meditation, don't try to meditate. Like the choir was told not to try to sing. Don't force it. When you meditate, let your lungs breathe the way they want to breathe. Let your mind think anything it wants to think about. Don't try to repress thoughts. Let your eyes see whatever they're looking at. And let your ears, your eardrums vibrate to any oscillations there may be in the air. Let go. You think that's very risky. Uh, it isn't. It really isn't. It's like a ship in a typhoon. They always shut the engines off because if the propellers are going and the tail end of the ship is thrown up so as to be above the water level, the whole ship will vibrate and be shaken to pieces by those revolving propellers. So in, in a big storm, uh, and life is a big storm all the time, you let go and you become like a cork on the water or a ping pong ball in a mountain stream. So that's, that's the art of Taoism. That's the whole thing. That's Wu Wei. Uh, Zhuangzi has the funniest tales about this. He is, often says, people who are trying to help things along are a nuisance. All he, the do-gooders, he has a conversation between Lao Tzu and Confucius, in which Confucius is prating about uh, charity and duty to one's neighbor. And Lao Tzu says to him, this is nonsense. He is just um, binding things onto people, putting burdens on them with charity and duty to one's neighbor. He says to Confucius, look now at the universe. The trees grow upwards without exception. The stars always follow their courses. And the migrating birds at the various seasons always cluster with complete regularity. But they don't say anything. They don't have any religion. And your idea of eliminating yourself is a positive manifestation of self. You have brought much confusion, sir the kingdom because you are like one who beats a drum in search of a fugitive or we would say like the police driving to a raid with their sirens on and of course when the fugitive hears the drums he conceals himself and so when you sound all sorts of drums and promise to be virtuous and make resolutions to be virtuous you're in for trouble the devil hears you coming. There is a, you see now, this is something that's very important. There is a Zen story 
which describes a woodcutter working in the forest, chopping down trees. And he suddenly noticed in a bush over there an animal that was watching him. And this animal is a sartoria. And he thought, I'm going to get that animal for lunch. But the animal could read his thoughts. And the animal said to him, you think you're going to catch me, don't you? And the woodsman looked round and made for it and the animal vanished. And then appeared at the opposite end of the clearing, laughing, saying, you can't catch me. And he thought, the next time I see that animal, I'm going to move to the opposite end of the clearing from which it appears, catch it that way. And the animal said, you're thinking, aren't you, to go to the opposite side of the clearing from which you see me? And for a while, the man tried, by going in various directions with his axe, to catch this animal, all to no avail. And he got disgusted and went back to chopping the tree. And the animal laughed at him again and said, so you've given up. And just that moment, the axe head flew off the axe and killed the animal. He had to get it without intention to do so. That's what's called purposelessness in Taoism, which is a form of Wu Wei. And a Taoist text says, when purpose has been used to achieve purposelessness, the point has been grasped. So, it's the same problem we have in India. You know there's a superstition that if you think of a monkey while you're taking medicine, the medicine won't work. So you, you're in the predicament of trying not to think of the monkey while taking medicine. <laughs> and that happens to us whenever we try to be natural. Everybody can see it's, it's forced, it's faked. And so you think then, how can I be genuinely natural? How can I really flow with the course of nature? How can I let my mind think whatever it wants to think? Because the moment I start doing that, I realize I'm doing it with an ulterior motive. I'm trying to meditate, I'm trying to grow spiritually. And that ruins the whole thing. Well, when you've tried for a long time to get the right attitude, and you find that all the attitudes you get are phony ones, then you come to the realization there's nothing you can do about it. It really doesn't make any difference. And again, the principle that I've emphasized all along, you give up. And in so doing, gain the strength and energy that you were looking for. You see, it's like trying to live in the present. Gurdjieff used to set his students the exercise he called self-remembering. That is, constantly, all day long, be completely aware of what you're doing. 
have your mind always on the immediate moment. Oh, and it's tough, 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 tough to do that. You get distracted. Till one fine day you realize, to your astonishment, there is no way at all of having your mind anywhere else but in the present. Because even when you think about the past or the future, you're doing it now, aren't you? And that results in a very curious transformation of consciousness. You feel that you, that the present moment is flowing along and carrying you with it all the time. Just like the flow of the Tao. The flow of the Tao is as it, what we would call the flow of the present, see? And you're with it. There's no way of being anywhere else. The Jung Yong, the book called uh, The Unwobbling Pivot, says the Tao is that from which one cannot deviate. That from which one can deviate is not the Tao. Or to put it into the form of a Zen story, the Master Joshu said to Nansen, what is the Tao? Nansen replied, your everyday mind is the Tao. Joshu asked, how do you get into accord with it? Nansen replied, when you try to accord, you deviate. So, uh, that's the principle. And this, although, uh, again, the paradox, you see, this sounds like a completely laissez-faire, spineless attitude to life. But it is precisely Taoism, which underlies, in common with Buddhism, in conjunction with Buddhism, it underlies the greatest achievements of Chinese art and culture. It underlies Judo. It underlies the Zen arts of Japan. Calligraphy, architecture, gardens. It uh, is the form of Chinese philosophy which in subsequent years became most interested in science and in the study of nature. The Confucians never had any interest in science because they were bookish people. They were all absorbed in texts. They were essentially scholastics and never opened the book of nature. But the Taoists were always observing natural phenomena, how they worked. They were interested above all in manual skills and using the Tao to perfect manual skills. And therefore, these lazy people achieved the most interesting results because they were like water which is lazy and always seeks the line of least resistance. But that is almost the same thing as intelligence.